Many people today who would call themselves Christians doubt their salvation. Sometimes that is once in their experience of uh, knowing God. Sometimes it's daily. They just don't really know. Many people doubt someone else's salvation. We see them here on Sunday or we know that maybe where we work that they go to church, they claim to be a Christian, but then we see a different lifestyle during the week. And it doesn't equate, it doesn't match up. What we profess, we, we say that we are, and then what we do. And so we doubt their salvation. And so the question is, you know, can you really know? How do you know that you know? And today the topic is about the assurance of salvation. In fact, it was one of the primary reasons that John wrote this letter at that period of history is to help believers know that they know, that they know they have salvation. Now, kind of a warning, today's message is not to create doubt in anyone's mind. But look, salvation is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of heaven and hell. And, and so we need to know. We can't, can we really know? And so I want to help you know today. There's three ways that you and I can know that we have a relationship with God, that we have salvation. Another thing I need to say is that in no way can we judge someone else's relationship to God. Now, we may question it by the way in which they live. But I, I don't know, you know, I'm not God. I, I can't say that person's going to heaven or not. But I wouldn't want to put myself in a position where I'm questioning whether or not I have a relationship with God or if I die, whether or not I'm going to heaven based on the way in which I'm living. I, want, I don't want to guess that. How, how sad it is, how tragic it is for me to stand over a casket at a funeral and not have confidence that this person is a Christian who, who maybe say that they are a Christian. Or leaving family members wondering, did they really know God? Please don't do that to your family. You need to live in such a way that they know. There's no question that this person knows God. So today I want us to see how we can know God. If you open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, if you're a guest, we're going through the book of 1 John. Remember, John is writing to what scholars call the Johannine churches. These are probably the churches that are in the book of Revelation. More than likely, John started these churches or that he was heavily involved in these churches in some form or fashion. He knew them, they knew him. And so he's writing at a very critical period in history of those who are false teachers who are leading people out of the church and who are saying, we have a better way uh, than what you're, you're doing. Our form of Christianity is a better form of Christianity and they're heretics, what they're teaching, and we'll see in just a few moments. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. This is how we are sure that we have come to know him by keeping his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him without keeping his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. 
The old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. All right, now the key word in the book of 1 John is the word know, K-N-O-W. All right, it's the Greek word gnosis, K-N-O-S-I-S, G-N-O, G-N-O-S-I-S, gnosis. All right, so to know, that's the key word. 41 times that word is used in this one letter. And so why is that so important? Well, it's important because of a cult group, a cult group called the Gnostics. Now, these are the false teachers I was referring to, G-N-O-S-T-I-C-I-S, Gnostics. Uh, and they are the ones who say that uh, they say they were Christians and that you, the way you were a Christian was having special knowledge of God. But they had a different view of God than we do. It sounds very similar. They would speak in terms of God being the creator and God being the redeemer. But the difference is that they believed that matter was, physical matter was evil. It was not good. And it really didn't matter. All right, it wasn't, it wasn't substantive, it, it wasn't an issue. Uh, they believe that the creator God is a lesser God. There are two expressions of God, the creator God. That the, the way in which he created, that means that he's a lesser God. He's a redeemer God, which we would agree. He has redeemed us from our sin, okay? He's purchased our pardon for our sin, redeem, that's what the word means. That he's a redeemer God. But that's the means by which, that's the venue by which you're able to have intellectual knowledge and this secret knowledge that God gives to those who possess this divine being, okay, that they name God. Well, look, if, if, if God, the creator God, is a lesser God, there are real problems. That means that life has no value whatsoever. That, that life is not good. And they, that's what they say. That's what they teach. And so we believe that life has meaning. It has purpose. It's interesting that today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, that all across our nation we're celebrating life, uh, whether it's uh, a child that's not born or a senior adult who's facing end-of-life issues, and everybody in between, euthanasia, infanticide, all those issues deal with the sanctity of human life. Sanctity, sanctify. Life is set apart by God. Life is holy. The word sanctity, remember? Life is holy. And so that's very important. And I'm grateful for a church where we just don't say that uh, abortion is wrong or that we're just pro-life, but that we're involved, that we help those who are in a crisis. Not just the woman, but everybody involved in that process. And... Uh, and so we, we commit ourselves to a ministry called Options for Women. We support them financially. We have many in our church who are volunteers who help those who are in a crisis situation. It's also important that we have uh, people involved in the process. Uh, we need more Christians running for office. Well, Barry Hovis is one of our state representatives out of our church. 
Uh, Dick Schwartz, a member, just announced that he's going to be going, uh, running for the county health board. Kim Schwartz, his wife, is running for Cape School Board. And so uh, maybe others I don't know about yet, but, uh, but these are Christians who are getting involved. We should pray for them. And, and so it's important that we, we hold that position. However, the point that is, is made here is that to say that God, as a creator God, is a lesser God because matter doesn't matter, it just says to you and me that we don't matter, that our life has no value, no purpose, no meaning whatsoever. And then we have this Redeemer God idea that God, it, the reason why we have that relationship spiritually is to have this special knowledge. In no way would a Gnostic believe and, and other world philosophies believe that it was possible for an eternal God to come in the flesh, to make himself known, to come and become human and live here on earth. Now that's what's unique about the Christian life is that John says, as we read last week, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what's unique about the Christian faith, that God came in the person of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man, therefore he satisfied God's wrath for sin and became the perfect sacrifice as the sinless man and became the second Adam he became the man that men ought to be and women as well in his character so it's critical that we understand that the word became flesh now the Gnostics would, would uh, there were two groups one would withdraw from culture and society and uh, they lived an ascetic life they, they just lived their life the other extreme is what's called as antinomianism, which is against anti, the law. That means against no moral law. In other words, we love God, we know God, we've experienced Him as Creator, Redeemer God, but, but it doesn't affect our flesh. Matter is evil. Matter isn't good, so we're going to do what we want to do because that doesn't matter. What matters is I know things about God through this secret knowledge because I have this spiritual connection with God. Well, Gnosticism was most popular during the 2nd and 3rd centuries. It was very popular. And that's why John was writing to these who were dealing with the issue of Gnosticism. But you know, it's still hanging around today. It's still here today. It comes in the form of progressive Christianity. Which says, oh I know God, I love God, and I like all the benefits of God. But I'm going to live the life that I want to live. That's not going to change the way in which I live. Uh, the deconstruction movement is also the, kind of the same idea. That they, 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 there are things about God they like. You know, it's going to the Bible and, and, and cut and pasting uh, the things about Jesus that we like or don't like. And we hold on to those things we like. But we're going to do basically what we want to do. There's no transformation. So it was a very prominent problem there. The whole point of this is, look, God wants you to know him so that you can experience spiritual transformation, that your life is changed. This morning, a few moments ago, baptized a guy named Jerry Staggs. He's so thrilled that his life is changing. He's tried everything else, but he, he was uh, telling myself and David Sander upstairs about what God's doing in his life and how he's making substantive changes in his life. We had another man join at the end of the service. 
who said, I'm moving here to Cape because this is where I believe God wants me. I want to be in this church and basically to a new life experience. And that's what the power of God does. So what's the purpose of knowing God and knowing things and, you know, having, being a biblical scholar if it doesn't transform into spiritual change? So with that, that's all background. That's free. Now we get to the sermon. How do, how do you know that you're a Christian? Number one. You will obey God's word. Verse 3, this is how we are sure that we have come to know him by keeping his commands. Now notice there's two words here, sure and know. Another translation says this, this is, we have come to know that we can know him. So it's translated sure. This is how we are sure. This is how we are confident that we can know him, that we can have this relationship with God because we keep his commands. Now there are three motives behind obeying someone. We obey because we have to. We obey because we need to. Or we obey because we want to. Alright. So a slave obeys because he has to. If he doesn't obey he's disciplined. Or he's punished. Alright. Uh, an employee obeys because he needs to. He needs to get a paycheck. He needs to provide for his family. And so he obeys so that he can keep his job. All right? Or a person loves God because he wants to. He obeys God because he loves God and he wants to do that. As children, remember, now think of it as a child in your home or as a parent with your children. A child has to obey, and if they don't, they're going to be disciplined. They have to obey at times when they don't want to obey because they can't understand why they need to obey. But we obey. If we didn't obey, we got discipline. Or a child obeys because he needs to obey. There are benefits in the parent-child relationship. There are things that his parents are going to do for him and give him because he is obeying what they are saying. Good things will happen uh, in, in simple ways, but in other ways that are good for that child. But finally, a child obeys because he wants to obey. He loves his parents. Now, that's mature love. Now, it's the same way with God and us as his children. We love God because we have to, or we obey God because we have to obey. We may not understand it, we may not like it, we may not want to, but if we don't, we're going to be disciplined. What does the Bible say? God disciplines those whom he loves. So he's a father to us and we're his children and he's saying, you have to do this. Whether you want to or not, this is the right thing to do. And if we don't do it that way, then at times we face his discipline. Or... We obey him because we need to obey him. There are things that we receive from him. There are benefits that we get from him by obeying him. And there are good things that will happen to your life if you obey him and follow his commands. But we should obey him because we love him. We just simply love him. Now that's mature love. That's God's kind of love when we love him in that way verse 4 notice the one who says I have come to know him without keeping his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him 
In other words, what's inside is eventually going to come out in the way in which you respond to God's commands. We're going to find out whether or not this person really knows him or is a liar. They say they know him, but, but they don't know him. We can say we know God, but if there's no desire to obey him, then the truth is not in us. That doesn't mean we're going to sin. This is not talking about legalism or sinless perfection. What's the desire of your heart? You know, a child really wants to obey his parents, but there are times they don't. Does that mean that child doesn't love me anymore or doesn't have a relationship with me? Of course not. But if it's a habit of life, I may question whether or not that child really loves me. All right? And so it is with God. So we love him because of his word. Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is perfected. Obedience reveals a true, deep, mature love. That's what he means by perfected. It is maturing. It is maturing. That word perfect can be uh, translated complete or mature. You'll see that. We want to present every man, Paul says, complete in Christ. It means mature in Christ. So that's what it's revealing. It, re it reveals that mature love. So how do you know you're a Christian? Well, you're going to obey God's word. That's the desire of your heart. How else can you know? Secondly, you will abide in Christ. Notice the second part of verse 5. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Now what is he saying? When you come to know Christ, that Christ becomes your example. That he's a template for your life and you're trying to emulate his life. It's the kind of life that we're supposed to live. That is what John means when he says remain in him. It's not just being connected. It's not just knowing him, uh, knowing things about him. It means that I am following Christ. His life is in me and I'm emulating that life. So let's go back to chapter 1. Christ is not only our uh, propitiation. He's not only our atoning sacrifice for our sin. He's not only our advocate. He's not just a defender for us. He's one who's coming alongside of us to help us and defend us. But he's the perfect pattern for our life. So we don't have just a legal position with God through Christ, but we have a very practical position that it, it, it helps us in knowing the way that we should live. Now notice verse 6. He says you should walk just as he walked. Just as he walked. The way that he walked that's the way I'm supposed to walk. The way that he lived life, that's how I live. Chapter 4, verse 17 says, For we are as he is in the world. Chapter 1, verse 7, We're to walk in the light as he is in the light. How do I walk like he did? Chapter 3, verse 3, We are to purify ourselves just as he is pure. In the likeness of his purity, that's what our purity should look like. Chapter 3, verse 7, the one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. My righteousness needs to look like his righteousness. I have no righteousness apart from Christ. All right, so what, Pastor? Well, what are the practical applications of that? All right, Paul says this in Ephesians 4, verse 32, that we should forgive, notice, just as God also forgave you in Christ. To the extent that he has forgiven me, that's the way I'm to forgive others. Well, Pastor, you don't know what this person's done to me. 
Well, think about what we've done to Christ. Our sin put him on the cross. Yet he still forgave us of our sin. And so we forgive to the extent that Christ forgave us. It's just a very simple thing. If we're going to say we know him, then it's going to play itself out. If we say we abide in him, we remain in him, we have this relationship with him, then it's going to play itself out in forgiving others. Uh, Notice Paul says also in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. The way that he loved the church, that's the way I'm supposed to love my wife. He sacrificed for the church. He served the church. That's what you and I are to do, men, as husbands. And, of course, that's true vice versa. That's the way women are supposed to be in that loving relationship of serving one another. So the only way that we can forgive and the only way we can serve in this way is being in Christ and abiding in Christ. Now, John explains what this means in the gospel. John chapter 15 and verse 1. Here's what he says. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vineyard keeper. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. And he prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. So neither can you unless you remain in me. Verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. Notice verse 2. We're to produce fruit. He says then more fruit. And then in verse 5, much fruit. And that cannot happen apart from Christ. That's what he ends in verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me, and my word remains in you, ask whatever you want, and it will be done for you. All right? So that's a great prayer. Uh, Ask anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, I've really prayed more like this in recent days. But there's a condition here in in this one context. That we need to be abiding in Him. We need to be remaining in Him. We need to be walking as Christ walked. We need to be living out our life like Him. Remaining. And then He answers. Alright, verse 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit, notice, and prove to be my disciples. So, how do we know? We are abiding in Christ. Now, what does that really mean? It means that you're completely dependent on Christ. Remaining or abiding in Christ means I'm completely dependent. The branch is dependent on the vine. It cannot survive if it's not attached to the vine. And we cannot survive. We cannot do what God would require of us or what we want to do in life if we're not connected to the vine. If we're not depending on Christ for our sustenance, for the fuel that we need to live the Christian life. It means to be completely dependent on him and following his example. That's why Paul would say that Christ lives in me in Galatians 2. Christ is in me. He lives in me. So how do you know you're a Christian? You'll obey God's word. 
you will abide in Christ. And third, you will love others. Verse 9. The one who says he is in the light but hates his brother is in the darkness until now. Now remember the context. These false teachers were full of pride. And they did not love others. You see, how do you know somebody has a pride problem? They don't love people. Remember, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity said that sin is the great pride. I mean, uh, the pride is the great sin. Our pride, we won't humble ourselves. And proud people don't humble themselves and love and serve others. And sometimes that translates into hating others. People don't matter. And so he says that the proof of your faith is not hating others, but loving others. Verse 7, John says that loving others is an old command. How old? All the way back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. He also says, though, it's a new command. It's a new command. What does he mean by that? In the Greek language, there are two words that we translate new. One is the word chronos, C-H-R-O-N-O-S. Chronos, we get our word chronology. All right, a sequence of events or a sequence of time, chronology. There's another word in the language, and it's the word kinos, and it means new in that it is different in kind. It's different in substance or character, and that's the word he uses here. That this new command is different. This is just not something new I'm saying in a timeline from way back here. It's new in its substance. It's different. Now, how is it new? How is this command new that he's giving well first of all it is the preeminent law it is the law above all laws Romans chapter 13 this is how Paul would say it do not owe anyone anything except to love one another for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not covet and if there is any other commandment All are summed up by this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So that law is above all others. So I need to be living the new command, not the old command, in the sense that I need to be loving. Love those who persecute me. Love my enemies. Love my neighbor as myself. Also, it's new in that it begins with the Christian life. Verse 7, he says, from the beginning. Not from the beginning of time, but from the beginning of your relationship, the beginning of your faith. Chapter 3, verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life. That means you know you're a Christian. Because we love our brothers, Jesus said in John 13. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians about brotherly love. You don't know me to write to you because you don't need me to write to you because you yourselves are taught by God, what? To love one another. I don't have to tell you this because you have a new nature. God's love is in you, therefore you automatically know that you're to love God. From the beginning of your faith, the nature of love has been put into you by God. But he's reminding them, hey, You need to love. Now, why is it new? Finally, it's because of Christ. Verse 8. I am writing you a new command, which is true. 
how, how is this true? Because it's in him. What does he mean by that? When you see Christ, you see love. Jesus said in John 13, I give you a new commandment. Love one another just as, there's that phrase again. We've read it many times today. Just as I have loved you, you must love one another. Just as I have loved you. Now Jesus illustrated that several ways in his ministry. With a woman caught in adultery, the Bible said, the Old Testament law said to stone him to death. Well, Jesus didn't do that. He loved this woman. He didn't condone her sin. He said, woman, where are those who condemn you? They're, they're gone. I don't condemn you. Then he said, what? Go and sin no more. Don't, don't do this again. This is not good. But he loved her. We see his love. In dealing with a sinner. We say that so many times. The woman at the well. The Samaritan woman at the well. How he didn't judge her. Didn't condemn her. He, he loved her. He helped her understand. What would satisfy the thirst. She was at the well. What's going to give her true water. Living water. It's Jesus Christ. He had to help Nicodemus understand. That look. You know a lot about the Messiah. But, but you really don't know him. And you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. There's got to be a transformation in your heart. Where that's what it really means to know God. You know a lot about him, but you really don't know him. You must be born again. You've got to start over spiritually. Here's the ultimate example. Of how we really see Jesus demonstrating love. It was on the cross. And not only just was he there on the cross... He had seven statements on the cross. He said this, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. We've got to keep that in mind when people hurt us. That, that many times they just don't know what they're doing. And therefore, God empowers us to love them. Now, I want you to notice that John makes a contrast between light and darkness. We talked about that last Sunday, light is better than darkness. He uses that metaphor again on this, this issue. Notice verse 10. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, what he's saying is persons were connected visibly in the church, but they hated. Particularly these false teachers were connected to the church, but they hated people. They created dissension. They didn't love others and didn't serve them. Those, he says, who, have, who hate others have never left the darkness. They're lost. They've never been saved. So a person is either in the light or in the darkness. There's no middle ground. It's heaven or hell. There's no middle ground. You're saved or not saved. And that's why this is so important, to know that you know. And the demonstration of that is the way in which we love other people. When someone is in the light, listen, they are empowered by God to love others. Now listen, this is, this is maybe the most important thing I say. This is the point that John's making. Hate is not the absence of love. Hate is the absence of God. We say we know God, but if we hate others, he says, no, you don't. 
Because hate is the absence of God. There's darkness there. You've never left the darkness. You're not in the light. The good news is that you can walk in the light. That you can love and you can forgive. And you cannot do that by the flesh. You can do it by the power of Christ. So, how do you know you're a Christian this morning? You can know that by obeying God's command. By abiding in Christ, depending on Christ, and by loving others. So here's some questions for you to think about and to answer as you leave today. Are you sure you're a Christian? I hope so, Pastor. I think so. I want to, I want to know. Well, those are wrong answers. Later on, we're going to study this verse in John, 1 John. These things were written, the Bible's written, that you can know you have eternal life. You can know today. It's not because of what you've done out of your pride and arrogance and your good works. It's because of the work of Christ on the cross for you. And that's being demonstrated in the way in which he's transforming your life. So why not today nail this down, settle it? Well, Pastor, years ago I prayed a prayer, but, you know, I've, I've, I've wandered away and I really don't know if that had an effect Maybe it did, maybe it didn't, but Satan wants to keep you right where you are in the spiritual doldrums so he can render you ineffective for God's kingdom and God's work. So nail it down and move on and get on with what God has for you. Maybe it's possible that what happened back then didn't take at all. And you're worried and you're wondering. Well, Satan doesn't want you to deal with the reality of your situation. But you're here today. You're here right now. So God has you here to deal with the reality of your situation. His word has been given to you. Not what's not what I'm saying. This is what God has said. But you have the opportunity to experience Him and experience His love and His grace, His forgiveness, so that you can love. And forgive and to show grace to others. Are you a Christian? Next, do you know what is the right thing to do? Pastor, I, I, I want to obey God, but I don't know enough of the Bible. We'll get into God's Word. Study His Word. His Word will show you where you need to change. And you just go on the light that He gives you. You may not know everything the Bible is telling you you ought to do, but whatever it is you do know, then do that and He'll give you more light. Don't worry about it. He'll give you more light to go on. Also, are you doing what you know to do is right? Maybe you didn't know, but now that you do know, are you doing that? Do that. Are you depending on God? Or are you depending on the flesh? I'm afraid that a lot of things that happen, happen because of the flesh and not because of God. It's a frightening thought. Lord, is all this being done in the flesh or is it being done by your spirit? Do people outside these walls look at Linwood and say, look what Linwood has done, or are they saying, look what God has done? Maybe they mean the same thing. I want it to be clear that what's happening here is of God. And finally, do you know someone who is hard to love? We'll start loving them. Maybe they're hard to love. The relationship may not change. 
Maybe it will. Maybe it'll be a catalyst for change. You know, maybe we don't really like some things about that person, but we still should love them. So show them. Send a note. Get together with them. Uh, do something in a tangible way that expresses love to them. They may receive it, they may not, but you know in your heart that, Lord, I'm trying to, to, to really show the world that I love you by loving others, even when it's hard. To love those maybe who are persecuting you, who you feel like are enemies, then God will empower you to love them. Listen, there's too much at stake in this issue today. And I'm here to tell you that you have a great opportunity to know for sure that you are a follower of Christ. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? There's somebody here today who would say, Pastor, this is a question that I've been asking myself for some time and it just seems that the Lord has confirmed in my heart that I need to nail this down. Well, then let's do that. In just a moment when we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to come to one of our pastors so that you can leave today knowing with confidence that you are right with God and that you're going to begin to allow him to transform your life in the ways that we've talked about and begin your journey of faith. Look, the enemy is trying to hold you back. And maybe he's trying to say, he may even say to you, oh, you know, you're fine, you're okay. But you, any of your heart, you know you're not. Maybe you are okay, but you need to talk to somebody about this. And really have that assurance. You can know that today. There might be others who would say, Pastor, I love the Lord. I do know Him. And I'm committed to Him. But I'm struggling in my Christian walk. I'm not where I should be spiritually. And there are times that I know that I'm saying and thinking and doing things that don't honor God. Ask God to help you. Ask God to help you particularly in maybe forgiving someone, loving someone that's hard to forgive or love. There may be others that God is leading you to our church family. Look, we really try to love each other and help each other, encourage each other, and demonstrate the love of Christ in our community by the way in which we love each other. And so we want you to be a part of that. And this will help you grow and mature in your faith. Then you come. Maybe you need a quiet moment here at the altar with the Lord. Maybe you want someone to pray for you. Then you let us know and we'll do that. Father, thank you for the power of your word. It's convicting. But Lord, we need that. We need to know where we're missing it. Especially, Father, on this matter of our salvation. Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, maybe they're not sure that they know you, I pray they'll nail that down today. Whether they're here in this room or they're watching us, listening to us, God, there's too much at stake the eternal destiny and the opportunity to experience you in this life Lord I pray that they'll follow you now Lord I pray that whatever it is that you're leading us to do this morning to know that it's the right thing to do and that we'll follow you in Christ's name Amen